Jesus never took believing at face value. Let me say it again. Jesus never took believing at face value. You would think, maybe, it's a great thing. People are believing. And yes, of course, we're always going to feel encouraged. We're always going to be excited to see someone expressing faith in Christ. But we also need to learn and understand Jesus never took that at face value, and we need to have the same kind of wisdom. In John chapter 2, verse 23, this will be on the screen, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Now, just a note here, don't, don't think, oh, well, they're just responding in the momentary excitement of miracles. Don't think that. Don't assume this faith is somehow lesser because it was a response to miracles. John himself said he wrote this book, recording these miracles, these signs, so that we would believe. So don't just discount it automatically. But at the same time, it goes on to say here in verse 24, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. In other words, Jesus understands the human heart. And simply because somebody is expressing faith in him or believing in him does not necessarily mean all that we would hope it would mean. It's one thing to get excited about Jesus. It's one thing to get excited. It's another thing to keep following him. To keep following after the excitement wanes. After the emotional rush fades after all of our friends who together we were kind of pumped up in a certain place like Lakeside Bible Camp, we're there, we're pumped. But then that you go home and that fades and maybe it fades for all of your friends. The interest in Christ fades when we go away to college or in a reverse kind of a way, we might go to a Christian college and we're in a spiritual hothouse and then we come home and all that input we were getting and all that support we had in that Christian college environment is gone. When the worship festival is over, if you've been to the gorge for one of those great worship festivals, you can be in the moment just so into Jesus and then you go home. Or when the crisis passes that made you feel a particular need for him. The crisis is over, my sense of desperation and need is over, and begin, my interest in Christ begins to fade. Just a couple of weeks ago, we were in John chapter 6. This also, you don't have to turn to these quite yet. We're going to be in chapter 8 if you want to start turning there. But John chapter 6, when many of his disciples heard it, this is when Jesus is talking about eating his flesh and drinking his blood. If you were here, you remember that. One of the difficult sayings of Jesus. And they, some of the disciples, it says, verse 60, when many, actually, of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? The question is, was it hard to understand or was it hard to accept? And I think it's a little bit of both, but maybe more hard to accept. But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? See, it's offensive more than it's puzzling in this context. Verse 64, there are some of you who do not believe. Jesus is looking at his own disciples, many it says. And he knows some of them don't have true, enduring faith. 
Verse 66, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So now we're going to confront this reality, this phenomenon again of people believing in Jesus. Jesus doesn't take it at face value. He's going to challenge their faith. And we're going to see in this instance another case where the faith proves to be ephemeral or as we're calling it this morning, fickle faith. So let's go to John chapter 8. If you're not there already, John chapter 8. Fickle faith. What we're going to encounter here is a study in Jesus dealing with professing believers. And for this, uh, this is instructive, instructive for our own hearts. Is our faith fickle faith? It might, a fickle faith might last for a day or for a week or for an occasion, like a, a, a worship concert. A week at summer camp, a particularly moving time in your life. But fickle faith can also be like those disciples in chapter 6. They'd been following Christ for at least some time. And yet, when things got difficult for them, they walked away. So we're going to see a study in Jesus dealing with professing believers. That's a, that speaks to our own hearts. But it also is instructive for us as we're seeking We're seeking to love and work with people and share the gospel with people and introduce Jesus to people. So, number one, the challenge to professing believers. In verse 30, notice. Now, this we're jumping into the middle of the chapter here. Some stuff's already been going on. Jesus has been in Jerusalem, and there's this encounter, argument, disputing, debating, pushback. But verse 30, notice this. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. A lot of times we might want to put a punctuation mark, an exclamation mark right there, write up the report. We had 50 decisions of faith this week. Hallelujah. End of story. That's awesome. But look at verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, notice that, the Jews who had believed him, Emphasis right now, he's talking to people who are responding in some form of faith. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You know, I was younger and we were being trained how to, how to serve and do, do ministry with people. We were often instructed when someone came to receive Christ and we prayed with them that we were to give them assurance We were to ensure them that they were now in Christ and eternally secure in Christ because they had prayed and received Christ and we had witnessed their faith. That's not what Jesus does. We're not in a position five seconds after somebody has prayed to receive Christ to assure them. We don't know enough yet. And what Jesus does here is he challenges them So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. This is the test of a genuine believer, a genuine disciple, a genuine follower of Jesus Christ. This is what we could call proof of life. There is no proof of life just right after someone confesses faith. And Jesus is saying, The evidence, the proof of life is that you will continue, you will remain, you will abide in my word. Now, what is Jesus talking about when he talks about his word? Let's be clear about that, first of all. 
Let me give you four marks of what Jesus is talking about when he talks about his word. We're to, a true disciple abides in his word. His word, number one, is the sum total of his message and his teaching. The sum total, all of it. When Jesus talks about being a true disciple and abiding in his word, he means all that I say and all that I teach. You can't just pick the parts you like. Everybody likes something, Jesus said. Okay, Even us good church folks sometimes don't like some of what he says. We don't get to pick. Secondly, Jesus' word is far more than moral ideals. It's very important in our world. Jesus is often, impra- is often praised for his moral ideals. People who do not accept his teaching about God, about life, about eternal life, will praise his moral ideals. Things like love your enemies. Is that not an amazingly high moral ideal? Turn the other cheek. Blessed are the peacemakers. I think everybody loves blessed are the peacemakers. As long as you can make it mean what you want it to mean, it sounds great. That's awesome. But Jesus is saying something far more than moral ideals. Third dimension of his word, it's a declaration of his identity. Just in this context alone, right here in chapter 8, we have some of the highest, in fact, we have the highest of his claims, his assertions of who he is. Just look at verse 23. He said to them, you are from below, I am from above. You are from this world, I am not of this world. There's a flesh and blood man standing there. Sometimes when he said these things, people were standing there that knew his parents. And he's talking about, I'm not from this world. Verse 42 in chapter 8, Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God. My true origin is not my physical birth. And down in verse 51 and following, we come to this highest of his claims. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And this just kind of lights their hair on fire. The Jews said to him, now we, know, now we know you have a demon. Dude, you are whacked out. Abraham died as did the prophets, yet you say if anyone keeps your word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? Who do you make yourself out to be? See, this didn't get invented in the modern era. This kind of Jesus claims are unbelievable. People who heard it come out of his mouth found it unbelievable. But dropping down to verse 58, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So Jesus' word is a declaration of who he is, of his identity. And finally, Jesus' word is a call to commit ourselves to him. So he talks about abiding in his word. He absolutely means adhering to it, keeping it, obeying it, but not just his moral instruction, also understanding who he is and committing ourselves to him. His word for us is follow me. You see that again in this chapter, verse 12. Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness. 
And so he says, if a true disciple, he's challenging people who are showing or expressing some kind of faith. And he's saying to them, now, that's great. Now, if you abide in my word, you will truly be my disciples. <coughs> and what he means by his word includes an understanding of who he is and a commitment of your whole life to him. Now, what is abiding? What is abiding? The word abide here simply means to remain or to stay or to continue. If you looked up this word in your concordance, you did a study of this word in the New Testament, the very Greek word itself, you would find it's used a lot of times just talking about somebody staying somewhere, like you might stay at your family's home in another city or you might stay in a hotel. For example, John 1.38, Jesus turned and saw them following and said to him, what are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? That's the word right there. He said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. In other words, late and they spent the night with him. That's important that we understand that this word does not contain any kind of mystery or deeper hidden meaning. There are times at which you will do some reading or you'll hear some teaching where people start talking about abiding in Christ as though abiding in Christ is some kind of deeper spirituality, deeper commitment. That you have the run-of-the-mill Christian who has believed and is saved, but then you have the abiding Christian who has moved into this deeper life, usually because they have made a stronger or deeper or fuller commitment. This is wrong. This is not what Jesus is talking about. This is, this is really a grave mistake, and the pun is intended. It is a grave mistake. It's colossally, a colossal mistake because it conveys exactly the opposite of what Jesus is actually saying. He's not saying if you move into some deeper level of life with me, then you'll get to have the title disciple. We make this very same mistake with the term disciple. We treat the term disciple like it's a, a sort of an upper class Christian, a more serious Christian. You're a run-of-the-mill, everyday, ordinary Christian until you really get serious, and then you're a disciple. No, no. If we're reading the New Testament like that, we're going to miss what Jesus is talking about. And it has eternal consequences. If we think he's only talking about moving to some deeper level, then we can sit there and say, well, I may one day go there, but for now I'm saved by faith and I have eternal life and I will go to be with God when I die. If we're reading it that way, we're not hearing Jesus because that's not what he's saying. To put it in our language, he's saying, if you're not abiding in me, you're not even saved yet. Because being saved is abiding. The mark, the test, the proof of life is abiding. Just as when we use the word disciple, the call to discipleship to deny yourself, take up your cross and follow Jesus is not for some upper level Christian, it's for being a Christian at all. 
And that's why we must be careful how we understand these words. So abiding. Abiding means to remain, to stay, to continue. If you remain in my word, all that I have taught you, including an understanding of who I am and the call to commit yourself to me, if you stay there, if you live there, if you continue there, you're actually my disciple. If not, what would be the opposite? That's the importance of this. Jesus never took faith believing at face value. And he never gave quick assurance. What he actually does in this working example is he challenges them. Remaining in Jesus' word is by definition a lifelong commitment. By definition. Because if you aren't remaining, if you're not committing, if you're not staying with Jesus, then you're not abiding. You aren't by definition remaining. You're doing the opposite. You are leaving. And so to remain in Jesus' word is not to a year or two, not until I grow up and leave my parents' home, go away to college. Abiding in Christ is for life. Abiding in Christ's word is for the rest of our lives. Notice there, Jesus says, if you. We've encountered this before, haven't we? If you've been with us, you've been in the teaching, we've been through the book of Colossians, we've been through the book of Hebrews, in both of those books, it comes up. It also comes up in 1 Corinthians 15. Let me give you three quick references on the screen. 1 Corinthians 15. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if, if, a lot of the way that the gospel gets taught in Bible-believing churches is shocked by this if. They don't think there are any ifs. They think it's just all sewed up. I prayed, received Christ, done. But the Bible has these ifs. Jesus himself said if. What does he say? You're being saved by this gospel if you hold fast to the word I preached you, to you unless you believed in vain. Colossians chapter 1. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him if, if indeed you continue. Both of those verses have said the same thing. I wonder where they learned this. <laughs> well, both were written by Paul. I wonder where he learned this. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. And then the book of Hebrews, verse, chapter 3, verse 6. We are his house, God's house, God's household, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is exactly what Jesus himself taught. And it's, it's upheld by the apostles as they write the rest of the New Testament. Now in verse 32, Jesus moves on. If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. If you remain, continue in my word. And you will know the truth. 
Genuine discipleship involves coming to know the truth. And we're going to see in a moment, so I'm not going to spend time here right now, there's a spiritual component to knowing the truth. This is not purely intellectual. The intellectual component is very real and very significant. God has built us this way. We're not discounting that. This is not a place where we say, check your mind at the door, check your brain at the door. Not at all. But there's more to it than simply convincing intellectual arguments. And we'll see that as Jesus goes forward in this encounter with these professing believers. He's going to say some pretty straightforward and some pretty difficult things as this unfolds. But genuine faith includes coming to know the truth. He's telling these people who believe, you'll know the truth. You'll know the truth about me. You'll know the truth about God. You'll know the truth about reality. And that becomes a further indication, a further testing of the reality of your faith. And then the truth, verse 32, will set you free. You'll be set free by the truth. Now hang on to this one because this is the one that creates the whole issue here. But what free from what? If the truth is going to set us free, what's it going to set us free from? This is, where, this is what it comes down to. It comes down to the same thing for you and me. As soon as Jesus talks about being set free, how are we responding to that? How are we reacting to that? If we're saying to ourselves, what are you talking about? I don't need to be set free from anything. Then you're reacting exactly like these believers here, these professing believers. Well, if you read the rest of this context, what is Jesus saying they need to be set free from? Verse 34 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So he's talking about the fact that we are under, that is before knowing him, before abiding his word, knowing the truth, being set free by the truth. Before that freedom comes, we are under the dominion of sin. He also goes on to say in verse 43 that we're under the power and dominion of Satan. Verse 43 says, Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and, you will, and your will is to do your father's desires. See, I'm just, trying to, I'm just trying to pull the meaning out of the very context. I'm not trying to give you a whole theology of the Bible. I'm trying to give you what Jesus is talking about here. The truth will set us free. There's a freedom we need. And if our faith is real, we will be liberated. If our faith is not real, we're still in bondage. We're still under the dominion of sin and under the dominion of Satan. So this is Jesus challenging professing believers. Second thing we see here in this encounter is fickle faith exposed. And this is what we've just been talking about. It's in their response. All Jesus has said, it's really not that harsh of a, a confrontation in, in verse 32, or 31 and 32. It's not that strong of a confrontation. It is, but it's, it's a friendly challenge, really. If, great, you've believed. If you continue in my word, then you'll, real, you'll be for real. And you'll know the truth and you'll be set free. But it's right there. 
Set free from what? That's the reaction. Verse 33, they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. What's going on here? They are offended. They are offended by what Jesus is saying. Now, this is the word of God for us. This isn't just a historical record. It is that, but it isn't only that. It is the word of God for us. And as we read this, our hearts may be exposed as well. We hear Jesus talking about our need for freedom, and we don't like it. It offends us. Our pride is irked at a very deep level. Now, it's very interesting here in this passage because you've got in verse 30, many believing. And you've got in verse 33, this this sudden 180 degree shift. And so many people look at this and they they wonder, wait a minute, maybe, maybe Jesus is talking to somebody else. So let's just look at it carefully. Look at your text here. Let's just look at this carefully. Just want to make sure that we're seeing that Jesus, throughout this entire encounter, is talking to the same group of people. There's no shift in the, in the audience or the hearers of what Jesus is saying here. Verse 30 says, and he was saying, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So there it is, many. It's a sizable number. Verse 31 So Jesus said to, this is interesting, the Jews who had believed him. Now if you keep reading through this, just notice quickly verse 33, they answered him, same people. Verse 34, Jesus answered them, same people. Verse 39, they answered him, same group. Jesus said to them, verse 41, they said to him, and so it goes. Whoever Jesus is talking to, specifically here, it is identif- they are identified in verse 31 as the Jews who had believed. Now here we encounter this interesting terminology that we find only in the Gospel of John. The word Jew is used 195 times in the New Testament. Outside of the Gospel of John and also A few times in the Gospel of John, it's always just an ethnic identity or religious identity, okay? It's talking about a certain group of people that we would all know as Jewish, okay? In John, however, most of the time, not all of the time, you have to to read the context carefully, but most of the time, he's not talking about everyone who is Jewish. He's talking about a particular subset of Jewish people. And how do we know that? It's because everybody in this context is Jewish. Jesus himself is Jewish. His disciples are in this context. They're Jewish. The Pharisees are mentioned earlier in this context. They're Jewish. The many who believed in him were crowds in Jerusalem. They're Jewish. And yet he will, John will single out some particular group and he calls them the Jews. And when he's using this word, in the sense that applies to not everyone who is Jewish in that context, but a particular subset or a particular group of people, 
Normally, it is Jesus' opponents or the leaders of the people. So notice here, in this context, can we find anybody that that might apply to? If you look back to verse 12 and verse 13, here's a suggestion. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So verse 13, the Pharisees said to him, there's some pushback from the Pharisees. Very often, the Pharisees are named among those who take official action against Jesus. Not just general opposition, but official action. Let me give you an example. John 7, verse 32. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. They had some kind of authority to send out the troops. Go get this guy. He's making trouble. Okay? So, as you read through this, it would appear that there are some in this larger group of the many, in verse 30, the many were believing. They were within this, a subset, a smaller group, that could have included the Pharisees and other Jewish leaders. And what does Jesus do? He speaks to them and he challenges them. And he says, now, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. You'll know the truth. You may have trouble believing what I say, but you will know the truth and you will be set free by the truth. And then comes the reaction. Two parts to their reaction. We're the offspring of Abraham. Now, friends, this isn't just heritage.com, okay? This isn't just an interest in genealogy. To say we are Abraham's offspring means what? It means, by definition, we are God's people. What are you talking about, Jesus? We are the chosen people. We are the people of the covenant. We have God's covenant unique covenant made with no other nation on earth, and we have God's promises. We are the in crowd. How can you talk to us like this? Now, who are the most difficult people to reach? Religious people, right? Because they've already got what they need. Oh, you're talking about God's stuff? I've got that. I'm taken care of. And who would be the parallel to this Jewish group in our context? It would be us. In other words, it would be people who identify themselves as Christians. People who identify themselves as Christians are going to have the hardest time hearing Jesus' words. What are you talking about? I was baptized as a baby and hold a membership in St. Pius Cathedral. Or should I say First Baptist Church of Seattle? Doesn't matter. Pick your denomination. I'm not picking on the Baptists here. I grew up Baptist, all right? If I, if I do pick on them, it's because I grew up there. and I, I know who they are. <laughs> it's just a kind of in-house dispute. But they go on to say, first of all, we are Abraham's offspring. 
We're the chosen people. Then they go on to say, not only are we God's chosen, but we've never been enslaved to anybody. That's part two of their reaction. (laughs) Now, yes, right? You think, are you kidding me? Your whole history is a history of slavery. What are you talking about? It started, you were born in Egypt. And when you came out of Egypt, everybody around you was fighting you and and opposing you and hassling you. And then the Babylonians, the Assyrians first, and then the Babylonians. And after the Babylonians come the Greeks, and now you're under the heel of the Romans. What are you talking about? One possibility, it's just, part of this just could be bravado. I mean, part of it's just, hey, the Romans may have the outside control, but nobody really controls us. We're gods. We're, we're, We're free in God despite our external circumstances. But, but in another way, it could be that they are not, they get Jesus' point exactly, and they're just rejecting the idea that there's any kind of spiritual slavery in their lives. And Jesus has to look at them and say, hmm, anyone who practices sin is a slave of sin and requires liberation in a sense, their reaction is a very modern reaction. Can you think of anything more offensive to tell somebody in our culture, you're a sinner? Our culture doesn't even have the category anymore. Sin? What rock did you crawl out from under? Wake up, turn on the TV. This is the modern world, it's not the Middle Ages anymore. Maybe it's better to say that our modern reaction is actually a version of a very ancient reaction because it's going on right here. It's been the reaction of the human heart, I think, from the beginning. Nobody takes very kindly to being told these things. What Jesus says here, you're under the dominion of sin and you're under the dominion of Satan. Can you think of a more offensive message to try to deliver in our context? Jesus himself understood this. John chapter 7, verse 7. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me. Why? Because I testify about it that its works are evil. There's the answer why people hated Jesus. Now, there were, there were several things that, that irked them and raised their, you know, raised their ire. His claims, of course, were central to that. You're blaspheming. You being a man or making yourself out to be God. But Jesus identifies part of the hard truth that provoked hatred was his announcement to them of their sin. John chapter 3, verse 19. This is the judgment. Light, the light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. Think about this. Where did the light come physically? Israel. So who is he talking about in terms of the people who loved the darkness rather than the light? Yes. God's own people preferred their darkness to the light God had sent. Jesus himself. So, fickle faith is exposed. The truth is stated. And the, and, the, and the nature, the character of the heart comes to light. It's revealed. 
They're believing. Isn't that great? Well, they're believing up to a point until Jesus says something that they find unacceptable. This is a word to our own hearts this morning. I just really wonder, I ask this question. I ask this question, I just ask this question honestly. Is it tough for us to hear John chapter 8? You are slaves of sin. You're of your father, the devil. Those are hard words. Are we reacting to them? Are we wanting to push back and say, wait a minute, I don't like this. Let's talk about blessed are the peacemakers or something else. Let's talk about loving each other the way you loved, uh, I loved you. That's good. Perhaps then our hearts are being revealed as well. Well, the last aspect of this encounter, verse 3, the truth about fickle faith. The truth about fickle faith. And we've been speaking to this already. First truth about fickle faith, three parts to this. You are slaves of sin. Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. What does he mean by slave here? But don't think of addictions and battles that you somehow can't get on top of. Those are there, and, and we, we may be having them in our lives. But he isn't talking about this felt sense of, oh, I just can't get on top of this particular thing. That's really not what he's talking about. He's talking about the fact that there are two spiritual kingdoms. There are two spiritual realms. And we're born physically into this world we become citizens of one of those two realms. We become citizens of what in other places is called the kingdom of darkness. The domain of darkness we'll see in a moment in Colossians chapter 1. There is the light and there's the darkness. There's God and there is the prince of this world, the God of this age. And to be a slave to sin is to be under the power and dominion of sin meaning that you're subject to its, not only to its power in your life, but you're subject to its control. You cannot rescue yourself from it. To be a slave of it means I'm powerless to deliver myself not only from its, its influence, but from its result, its consequences, its penalty. I'm under, a, I'm under an authority, under a king, under a power that I can't get out from under, even when I want to. And this is the core spiritual need of every one of us before we are set free by the truth Jesus spoke of. It doesn't matter who our parents were, how we were raised, how moral we are, how religious we are, even how biblically moral and religious we are. These people were the best of the best, biblically speaking. Now, the ESV translates this, everyone who practices, and I, I just want to say, don't get hung up on the word practices. Well, I don't practice. I mean, I struggle and I give in sometimes, but I don't practice it. What they're trying to capture here is the fact that this is in the present tense, meaning it's an ongoing thing. If this, is just, if this is the pattern of your life, it's an ongoing reality. If you're a sinner, just don't get hung up on the idea of this being some kind of practice that, oh, I don't do that. What Jesus is confronting us 
with here is also spoken of by the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 6, verse 16. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you are committed. And at that point, to use Jesus' words, the truth set you free. This is what you were, but you have been set free. If you go back earlier in chapter 6 of Romans, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin, to its power, that is, to its, its control over our destiny and life. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. That's a very interesting verse. I don't have a lot of time to unpack it, but it's a very powerful verse. The one who, he's using a natural illustration. When you're physically dead, you stop sinning. It's over. The battle's done. He says, you have spiritually died because you've died with Jesus. You've been crucified with him. So that life of being under the dominion of that kingdom has ended. It's over. That's what he means. But these people who had professed faith, but had so quickly reacted and demonstrated its fickle faith, he's saying, you're slaves of sin. And that's the real issue. Second thing he says here is that God is not your true spiritual father. Verse 37, I know that you are, that's in John 8, verse 37, I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet... So I get the fact where you come from physically, and I get your sense of entitlement and privilege being the chosen people of God with the covenants and promises. Yet, you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. See, there's the real problem. They're believing, yet their word is finding no place in him. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. <laughs> Jesus says, well, wait a minute. If Abraham were your father, you would be acting like Abraham, but you're not acting like Abraham at all. Notice what they say down in verse 41. <laughs> Jesus is challenging them. You're not acting like Abraham. Verse 41, you are doing the works your father did. He hasn't quite come out and said it yet. He's starting to allude to who their real father is. And it's not God. It's not Abraham and it's not God at this point, spiritually speaking. Physically, yes, but not spiritually. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. <laughs> wow. There's a slap. Now, it's very possible that they know the rumors about his birth. Just imagine you are Mary raising a little baby in Bethlehem, and everybody knows. Girl comes home pregnant, and she says, God did it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's possible that's what they're talking about here. It's also possible that this is more of a racial slur, because the Samaritans and the Jews and their animosity for each other created theologies of the fact that they, they, were, they were all just illegitimate. The, the, the Samaritans in particular, what, what are they? They're half-breeds. They're mixed. And the Assyrians 
imported Gentiles into Israel, people intermarried, mixed race, Jewish slam on Samaritans. Why do we say that? Because a little bit later, they say in verse 48, the Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? That's the N-word, okay? So that may be what they're actually referring to there. We don't know with absolute certainty. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. There are the words. If God were truly your spiritual father, speaking to religious people, speaking to crossway fellowship, if God is your father, you will love Jesus. If you're really in relationship with the true and living God, you will respond to Jesus with love, not with this pushback of, way oh, are you talking about we're God's children, we're Christians, how dare you talk to us this way and suggest these things to us. Well, finally, your spiritual father is Satan. Verse 44, you are of your father the devil, And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character for he is liar and the father of lies. Murderer and liar. From the beginning. Garden of Eden. Genesis chapter. Got it? Genesis chapter 3. Satan comes along, lies to Eve. And death is the result. And he says, your heart is not the heart of either Abraham or God. Your heart is the heart of the devil. Their attitudes and actions reveal who their real spiritual father is. 2 Timothy 2, 24, the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. And then Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. The challenge of Jesus this morning is, is your faith real? You've believed, now you must abide. If you abide, you are truly my disciples. Hear the word of God. Hear the word of Jesus. Because Jesus exposes by challenging the hearts of believers and their real heart is revealed. God speaks to your heart. What is he revealing? I hope it is a heart that is ready to abide, is abiding, continuing in his word because we are truly his disciples. Let's pray.